0: Have you ever been headed off on a a road trip or something for a few days and then realize that you forgot something? I mean, you know know how it is, right? Maybe you're going camping or maybe you're just uh, on vacation for a little bit and you've made your list. I mean, you know what you want to bring. You've you've got it all mapped out. You know, you're going to bring your toiletries, you're going to bring your change of clothes, whatever special gear that you need, you're going to have it. And then, well, you get about halfway down the road and you realize, man, my cell phone's back at my house. Or you get to the campsite, it's like, I forgot the lighter, forgot the matches. And you're thinking to yourself, how in the world did I forget that? And your family's looking at you, how in the world did you forget that? You know, we've all been there, you know, at one time or another. It seems like we forget something that's so consequential, so important, and yet, you know, we forget. Well, as we continue our study, our empowered study through Mark's gospel, we're reaching the point where Jesus is going to commission off his disciples to go make disciples. And here at Central, we talk a lot about disciple making, because that's what we're saved for. You know, the Bible says that we're saved for good works, and chief among those good works is to make disciples. And so as we go and make disciples, I don't know if you're anything like me, that sometimes I'm talking with someone, having a conversation with somebody, and I'm just thinking to myself, you know, if I just had that book with me right now, you know, I, you know there's, it would be really helpful. Or, or if they could watch this sermon that I heard, you know, it was so good. You know, it speaks just to what they're going through. Or, or there's this article, they could just read this article, it'd be so helpful. Well, Jesus actually gives his disciples a list of everything they need to bring with them as they go. And shockingly, it's more a list of what not to bring. And so we're going to see all that this morning. But before we get there, Jesus heads home to his hometown of Nazareth. And the reception that he gets there, well, it's equally shocking. Let's go ahead. We'll check it out. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Mark 6, 1 through 13. John Mark writes, "'Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, "'Where did this man get these things?' What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could not do mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet. And that is a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Just to recap with you, Jesus had been in Galilee, right? And a lot of amazing things had happened in Galilee in that region. He demonstrated his authority, his authority over the weather, the elements, the storm. He'd calmed all that. He demonstrated his authority over disease and death, sickness, over demons. So he's uh, attracted quite, uh, quite a crowd. I mean, when he heads back into Galilee, you know, the crowds are coming out. They can't wait to see him. There some, and he was wildly successful. Seems like if he wanted just to hang out in Galilee, that he could have attracted more and more and more people. I mean, the crowds could have gotten bigger and bigger, the miracles he was doing, how he was teaching. But Jesus doesn't do that. Mark tells us that he leaves Galilee and he heads back to his hometown of Nazareth. We don't really get the rationale why he decided to go home, but just he decides that now is time to go home. The only clues that we really get about the life and ministry of Jesus is that it seems a lot of times that he's much more content to minister to a small group of people rather than to a big crowd. Perhaps more life change happens there, as seems to be the case. But anyway, he goes home to Nazareth. And when he's going home to Nazareth, you know, you'd expect, right, with everything that's been going on, there'd be like some big like, parade, like welcoming him home, and this is going to be great. Like, here comes Jesus, you know, he's coming back now as this rabbi, this great teacher. You've heard about this stuff, he's, this is going to be awesome. But that doesn't happen, does it? Now, the only clue that he's not really going to be welcomed like that is because the last time we saw Jesus' family, do you remember what they were saying? They're saying, Jesus needs help. Something's not right, you know, in his mind. You hear what he's teaching and everything. We, we need to go help Jesus. He's unbalanced if he's not insane. And so they think they need to help him. Well, now Jesus is back in Nazareth, and he's preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the people are astonished at his teaching. See, that's the thing about Jesus That that when you just listen to him, that that when you just get to know him, that he is captivating. He is astonishing. He's wondrous. He, He draws you in, he captivates the hearts and minds of his people. But here in Nazareth, that captivation, that wonder, that astonishment, well, it quickly shifts to suspicion because they know him. He grew up there, he was their neighbor. And so they're looking around and they're asking the question, where does he get all this stuff from? Everything he's saying, where where does he get this wisdom? Where does he get this power? Where is the source of all this coming from? They're asking the where question. You know, if they'd have only stopped to ask the what question, what does all this mean? Well, it would have actually taken them to the where question. If they'd have asked what this mean, Means, well, then they would have understood where it all comes from. The God's the source. Of everything. Jesus really is the son of God. But they're not asking that because they're not really so interested in having their curiosities met about who Jesus is. What they really want is their prejudices against Jesus confirmed that we know him. He's from around here. He can't be all that special. So what? How, how, how's he doing this? What's going on? And so this is what they're after. And they're... And we're invited into that conversation, right? We get to hear what they're saying. You're saying, isn't he a carpenter? Yeah, I mean, we know he's just a carpenter. He, He works with his hands. And now he's saying all this? And isn't he Mary's son? And aren't these his brothers and his sisters? You know, it's interesting that they're saying, isn't he Mary's son? In those days, you would always be known by your father. It not matter who you are. It would always be, isn't he Joseph's son? Now, I maybe mean, this time Joseph has likely died, but there might be something else in that statement as well. Just like, you know, I mean, there are some suspicious like, stuff going on about his birth. You know, we can count to nine, and it does, the math doesn't seem to add up here. I mean, is, is Jesus a legitimate child of Joseph? I mean, they're almost questioning that. We, we know his story. We, we know there's stuff about him. How could he be this special? We know where he came from. We know who he is. We know his brothers and sisters. We know his family. How can he be this special? See, these people know Jesus. And that's part of the problem here. They know his family background. They know where he came from. They know his hometown. And so they're thinking nothing that special comes from Nazareth. There's no carpenter who does stuff like this. I mean, Mary and Joseph, it's just blue collar folks here. Who does he think he is? This is what's going on. And it's interesting because in Mark's gospel, what he's doing something, if we can just step back and take a macro view of, of the book here from chapters one through chapter six, Mark has been alternating comments by demons and by people. Okay, I want you to see this. He's, he's going back and forth, what the demons are saying about Jesus and what humanity is saying about Jesus. Okay, check this out. Mark one twenty four. the demons say, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. In Mark 1 the people are saying, who is this who teaches with such authority? In Mark 1:34, the demons, uh, Jesus wouldn't even let them speak. He silences them because he doesn't want demons to testify as to who he is. In Mark 2 7, the religious leaders are saying, why doesn't Jesus just be quiet? Who does he think he is talking like this forgiving sins? In Mark 3:11, the demons say, Jesus, you are the son of God. In Mark 4 41, the disciples are asking, Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. In Mark 5 7, the demons say, What do you want with me, Jesus? You're the son of the most high God. And in Mark 6 3 now, the townspeople are saying, Isn't he a carpenter? Isn't he Mary's son? Aren't these his brothers and his sisters? See, it's interesting. Mark, he's, he's bringing to our attention and he's begging the question, when will humanity realize what demons already recognize? When's humanity going to get that Jesus really is the Son of God? That everything he's saying, everything he's demonstrating about himself is really true. Demons already get that. They recognize it right from the beginning. When will humanity recognize it? And you know what? That question is still around today, isn't it? When will humanity recognize that Jesus really is the Son of God. Because we look around at a dark culture, who doesn't get that, right? We don't get it. But you know what? Neither do we a lot of times. Because things in life happen. And sometimes life is hard. Sometimes life is difficult. And we fail to see that Jesus is Lord. We fail to see that the good news of the gospel impacts that, that he's still Lord and that he's still good. Everything we just sang this morning, that God, you're good. You're better than anything else. God, you're Lord. You're Lord over everything. But sometimes we fail to recognize that, don't we? Because we get caught up. The demands of the moment, the circumstances, they get so big and Jesus seems so small. But the truth is, no matter our circumstances, Jesus is still good. No matter what you're going through in life, Jesus is good. And no matter what you're going through in life, Jesus is Lord of that. He's Lord over that situation. He can work. And sometimes I think the culture doesn't recognize it because we don't always recognize it. We don't always live that way. And if we are supposed to demonstrate this to a watching world, and yet, well, sometimes circumstances get too big for us, well, it makes it that much harder for them to realize. But anyway, this, this is where they're at in Nazareth. We do have one cultural advantage, though, at least one, compared to the people in those days. We have this. Uh, bias in America, of the American dream. It's a good bias, right? It's this idea that anybody can go, it doesn't matter where you come from, that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you can come, become somebody. You can escape abject poverty, you can climb the ladder of success, and you can amount to something. Well, in Nazareth, that's not the idea. In those days, it's like whatever class you were born into, that's where you stay. So the fellow Nazarenes, they're looking at Jesus like, we know where you come from. You come from right here in these neck of the woods. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Not not people like this, not these learned, skilled rabbis, not miracle workers. Like we know who you are and you don't just get to climb out of this. And so there's this difference here. And Mark, he's not helping the situation because he could have, like Matthew and Luke did, he could have traced Jesus' genealogy And he could have let his readers know, hey, Jesus really is somebody. I mean, we can trace his lineage back to King David. I mean, yeah, he's got royal lineage here. He's somebody. Mark doesn't do that. In fact, Mark almost seems to accentuate the humility of Jesus, his humanity. And it's his humanity that is blocking the people from recognizing Jesus' deity, that he is God. You know, over the years, we've tried to help that out a little bit. And so perhaps you've heard people say something like, you know, Jesus was a carpenter, and can you imagine the type of carpenter that he was? I mean, the type of stonemason that he was? I mean, he was probably putting out the finest stuff of the day. I mean, the stuff that Jesus would have produced, it would have been the very, very best. And if he needed to make tables, chairs, whatever it is, you know, snap of the finger, boom, it's done, and it's the very best. Or, you know, Jesus, I mean, growing up, can you imagine the kind of kid that he was? I mean, he'd have been valedictorian of his class, captain of whatever sports team. I mean, he'd have been the very, very best at whatever he did. See, we like to romanticize Jesus' childhood. That's stuff of the Apocrypha, okay? That's what the Apocrypha does, these fanciful infancy narratives about how unbelievable he was as a child. Well, there's something about Jesus that we see that he veils his deity in order that people can see that he really is human he veils his deity in order to demonstrate his humanity. And the fact that he has veiled his deity is the very reason why now the people in Nazareth can't understand his deity, because he's highlighted his humanity. And so they're having a hard time because they say, we know you, we know you're human, we know you're just like us, we know your family, and people from here, they don't become people like that. And As this is going on, Jesus has his disciples with him, and you can imagine they're watching. And they're watching, and I I assume there's some lessons that they're learning there. That sometimes rejection takes place, even in places that you'd least expect it. Sometimes you experience what seems to us as failure, even in places that you thought, man, this is going to be great. This is what's happening here. I mean, can you imagine we're coming in Jesus' hometown? They're going to love him, it's going to be great. But it's failure. It's rejection. They're offended by Jesus. The other thing is that you can't lose your fascination of who Jesus is, even when there's failure all around, even when there's rejection around. Rejection should never dampen your fascination. And the disciples need to learn this lesson, because we're entering into a period of Jesus' ministry where rejection is about to become the norm. And so, and they're going to be sent out now, and they need to understand that, hey, when, when the message that you're preaching is rejected, that you don't lose your fascination with who Jesus is, with what he does. And it's a lesson that we need to have, and we need to learn as well, because there's going to be people who, I mean, yeah, Jesus' word, that's, that's good, you know, but, you know, let's just kind of take it in moderation here. Don't become like a crazy disciple, man, you know, that's the, that's tough of the extreme. We, you know, we, we don't want that. There's going to be people who they just damp it down. You know, if it works for you, that's fine. And almost kind of steal your joy and wonder out of who Jesus is and the amazement of his person and what he does and how he, how he uses us. Well, you know, moderation. No. We should be captivated. People who really just see Jesus, they're brought in, and it's, there's a wonder to it all. There's an amazement with who he is. There's a a captivation of who he is. Never let rejection dampen your fascination. Now, Jesus calls his disciples together, get away, and he begins to commission them off, two by two, to go make disciples. And it's interesting. He gives them a list of what to pack. Here's what you need to bring as you go make disciples. And really, it's a list of what not to bring. You don't really need to bring much. Bring a staff, bring some sandals, and go. No money, no bag, no food, no housing, nothing like that. Just not even a change of clothes. Just go. I mean, can you imagine this morning if, you know, we all just said, all right, we're going to make disciples this next week. Set your cell phones down, set your wallets down, purses, all that stuff, just go. We'll drop you off in pairs in cities all all around Portsmouth. We'll come back next week. We'll talk about how it went. I mean, can you imagine the tension of the moment that the disciples are going through? I mean, can you imagine if we sent off missionaries that way? Like, hey, we're going to send you off to a far off country. Uh, No, you don't need to spend any time like raising money or support or anything like that. Just go and bring a friend, See what happens. I mean, do you feel the tension? Because I imagine that's the same tension the disciples were feeling. You know, we got we got nothing? We, we, got, we got to go to this town? It's just the two of us? We got to try to find like somebody who's gonna welcome us into their home and just stay there. You know, now Jesus, he's not being prescriptive here. He's not saying that when you make disciples, this is how you have to do it. You have to go with nothing. Except a friend. And, and he's, he's not being prescriptive. This is descriptive of how Jesus is sending his disciples and how he did it. But I think there are principles in like descriptive passages like that that are definitely applicable to us. And chief among those is that we must recognize that everything we need for life and ministry, Jesus has it. I don't need anything else. If I want to be effective for life and ministry, Jesus has it all. So really, I just need to know him. I need to know him really well. I need to be enamored with him. I need to to know his word and what he teaches and who he is. Because if I can explain him to people, if I can introduce people to Jesus as we meet him in the scripture, people will be captivated by him. They'll love him. They'll want to know him because he is magnetic. He is this winsome. He gives joy in all circumstances. If I can introduce people to this Jesus... He has everything you need for life and ministry. Those other books and articles and sermons. They can be helpful, sure, but they're not necessary. The only thing that's really necessary is a deep knowledge relationship with Jesus. And so it's a devotion to him. And because you're devoted to him, well, then you're devoted to the task that he gives, mainly making disciples. I'm devoted to him, so now I'm devoted to the task that he's given me because I want to be about Jesus' work. Now, if you're not devoted to Him, generally, you're devoted to self. And, okay, what makes me feel good? And, you know, what would be good for me? And that's how we typically think. What's going to be best for me? And so, But the life of a disciple-maker is Jesus above all else, above worldly comforts, pleasures, things like this. Not that they're bad, they just pale in comparison to relationship with Jesus. And Jesus, he commissions his disciples to serve people, to meet needs, meet spiritual needs. Yes, they're preaching this message of repentance, which is right alignment with Jesus. Okay, so they're preaching a message of being rightly aligned with Jesus. But they're doing more than just a spiritual message, right? They're healing people. They're They're casting out demons. They're meeting physical needs as well. Sometimes in the church, we can go to one extreme or the other. We can focus simply on spiritual needs, right? Neglecting all else. I just really want to be sure that you know Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. Okay, good, done. We're we're good. And we can focus on that extreme, or we can be on the other extreme where, you know, if I just go and do a bunch of benevolent things and good works and all this kind of stuff, feed the hungry, clothe the naked you know I'm good I'm, I'm I'm Jesus does it both and he commissions his disciples to do both they're both important meet spiritual needs absolutely meet physical needs yes it's both why because Jesus loves the whole person he loves your soul he loves your body he loves everything about you you know he cares about the very hairs on your head he's numbered them all He he cares about the details of your life that seem so insignificant. that You're like, Jesus couldn't possibly care about that. Yeah, he cares. He cares about stuff that you don't even care about yourself, that you don't even know about yourself. He knows, and he cares. And because he knows and cares so deeply, so his followers then should love people in the same way. And really, that's what we're seeing, that discipleship is an extension of the ministry of Jesus discipleship is an extension of Christ's work in the world. That's what we do, right? We go with the authority of Jesus. We preach the message that Jesus taught, and we do the works that he's done. And so we learn what his disciples, what he's teaching his disciples, he's creating this tension so that they'll learn, I've got everything you need. I've got everything you need. Money Food, I'll provide. I'll take care of it. Housing, we'll make sure that's covered. I've got it all. You just trust me. What are you going to say? What I've told you. What are you going to do? What you've seen me do. This is how it works. At the same time, you got to be ready. There's going to be rejection. And there's going to be times sometimes when you got to shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against those people that you're talking to and just move on to the next town because they're not listening. More than just not listening, they're rejecting. They don't want anything to do with it. And so you got to leave. And in that rejection, in that uh, failure, as it seems in the moment, we don't want to lose our fascination, right? And so one of the instructions Jesus gives, he sends them in pairs. Don't do this thing alone. Making disciples is hard work. It's not easy. There is going to be failure. There is going to be rejection. It is going to be hard. You're going to need someone to bounce ideas off of, to encourage you as you're getting down. Or when you think, you know, I can't do this. (laughs) I'm not made for, how am I going to make a disciple? You know, no one really ever did it for me. What am I going to do? You need that somebody with you who can just speak God's truth to you and encourage you through his word and through his gospel. No, Jesus chooses to use you, not because he needs you, but because he loves you. And so he invites you into the work that he's doing. And so it's a good idea to have somebody with you. You see, all of this is so empowering. Everything that Jesus is saying to Jesus is so empowering. It's the same thing to us. I mean, it's empowering. We're not people who just go out, like, hat in hand, begging, hoping, oh, just please, like, have a good response to what I'm telling you. No, we go out empowered by the power of Jesus with authority to proclaim this message. It's the same message he preached. And so there's a joy to it all. There's a winsomeness to it all. There's an attractiveness to it all. Then we rightly understand, Jesus, man, this is what a privilege what an honor. This isn't some, like, obligation or, you know, I mean, awkward. Maybe, but it's, it's wonderful. Well, we see this wonderful scene, and then it quickly shifts. I want you to see where Mark takes it. Verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard what was going on, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. when, When you read it, as you're reading through, the scenes seem almost unrelated, don't they? I mean, you get this one just exciting scene. Jesus, we've reached that point where his ministry is now multiplying. He's sending off his, commissioning off his disciples. And then the very next line, we begin reading about John's death. It almost feels like Mark is throwing cold water on the whole situation. But I think there's something that Mark has in mind that that his readers need to understand that we need to get. And that is, we're commissioned off to a dangerous world. Yeah, Yeah, sometimes it's just like indifference and offense like you see in Nazareth. But sometimes it's a whole lot more perilous than that. And all the disciples would realize that. They would all face the perils that John the baptizer has now discovered for himself. And if we step back, we just kind of look at the characters in this story. It is kind of fascinating. There's Herod first. Herod's fascinated with everything that John is saying, really. He's captivated by him. It seems like Herod would be content to listen to John preach sermons all day long, that he, he hears him gladly. At the same time, he's confused by it all. He's wondering about it. He's fascinated by it. But what does this all mean? And as John is preaching, and you know he's preaching a message of repentance because this is what John does. You know, there's something about Herod that is still rock hard resistant to this whole idea of repentance. Because repentance comes with a cost, you know. There's a cost to following Jesus. And for Herod, the cost would be he'd have to give up his power, the way he's abusing his power, his dancing parties. He had to give up his illegitimate wife that he's taken for himself. There's, there's things that he would have to give up. And for Herod, the cost is too great. I can't give up those things. And so, you know, I'm happy to listen to John, happy to hear what he's saying. He's, he's fascinating. I realize he's righteous, good, noble man. But to really follow through and to take any step, no, that's too much. And then there's Herodias. She's not like Herod. No, she didn't even want to listen to John the Baptizer. She hates John the Baptizer because the only thing she cares about is herself, right? How much power can she obtain? How can she get ahead? So she'll get rid of her husband. She'll marry his brother. Just anything to to grab a hold of power. She'll send her daughter out for these men to do some kind of dancing party. Whatever it takes, she'll do because she just wants to get ahead. And she knows in order to get ahead, she's got to get John quiet because maybe one day Herod will listen. And so here's the opportunity. Her daughter dances for her stepdad, all the military commanders. She pleases them. Herod says, what do you want? And she goes back to her mom. Mom, what should I ask for? See, there's Herodias' daughter too. She's one who can be manipulated. She just wants to please her mom, wants to make her happy. What should I do? Her mom says, ask for John, the baptizer's head on a platter. So that's what she does. That's what she asks for. Herod doesn't want to do it, but he feels like he's trapped. He's boxed in. He can't go back on his word now. So it happens. You know, if Herodias were here and we were to ask her, like, hey, Herodias, if you were to like, as you're parenting your daughter, would you ever want to teach her to be conniving? Would you want to teach her to be like flirtatious? Would you would you want to teach her to be murderous? You know, would, you, would you want to teach her these things? I'm sure she'd say, well, no. But her actions have taught her all that, haven't they? I mean, just by what she's done, she's taught her daughter, I'll sacrifice you. I'll sacrifice your integrity. I'll sacrifice your values. I'll sacrifice whatever it takes. I just want to get ahead. Life is just about you. You know, children are resilient. They can overcome bad parenting. But oftentimes, it results in shattered lives. Broken people. And what Mark is pointing out is this is the world we're sent to. This is the world the disciples are sent to. This is the world we're sent to. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of shattered lives. There's a lot of pain. And there's people like Herod who will be fascinated, but will never really take the step. They'll be intrigued. They'll listen, but that's as far as it'll ever go. There's people like Herodias who will just reject. There's people like Herodias' daughter. They'll they'll try to please people, whatever, be easily manipulated. But the point is, it's dangerous out there. And you're going to face rejection. You're going to face failure, things that look like failure to us. And what the disciples need to know and what we need to know is we make disciples, even when it's dangerous, even in the face of danger, make disciples. Because there is a silver lining in this whole episode. And that is, when you have John the baptizer, you have one disciple maker, right? Right? you have one guy who's out there faithfully trying to make disciples of Jesus. Now, you have 12. Now there's 12 disciple-makers who are sent off to make disciples of Jesus. And now today, when to fast-forward church history up the present day, we should have a whole bunch of disciple-makers, right? Thousands, millions of disciples act- actively, intentionally making disciples of Jesus. It's exponentially grown. And we've all been sent with the empowerment of Jesus. We've been sent. You've been sent. Like, don't ever miss that. God has sent you. You say, I don't know if I can do it. God has sent you. He says, yes, you can. Because I've empowered you. Everything you need for life and ministry, he's got. He says, I empower you. You go, You've been sitting, and there's a fascination to that. That here's your packing list. Just focus on me. Focus on me and my word and my truth and you can make disciples. Bring a friend who can encourage you, who can strategize with, you can do it together. Never stop being fascinated by that fact that Jesus chooses you, the God of the universe. He chooses you to use you. Not because he needs you, but because he loves you, and so he wants you to be about what he's about. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are a good God. It is amazing. It is fascinating. It blows our mind that you would choose us to make disciples of your son. God, because we know ourselves. We know our shortcomings. We know our deficiencies. We know the tension that we face in our own heart at times. But God, help us to move our focus beyond all that and simply on who you say we are and how the good news of the gospel impacts our lives each and every moment of each and every day. We need your help to that end. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.